from the International Association of Chiefs of Police. Welcome to the Discover Policing Podcast. I'm Joseph Marcus. You know, when we start trying to stop people from recording, doing lawfully recording us, it ends up escalating situations rather than de-escalating situations. So I think we've come a long way, and people do this for a living. They're, they're actually looking to have confrontations with police officers. When I was a journalist, the only way that the public uh, might see uh, photographs and recordings is if those pictures were published in a newspaper or magazine or broadcast by a television station. This episode is funded by the U.S. Department of Justice's COPS Office, and the department's full disclaimer notice is available at the end of the podcast and in the episode show notes. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the IACP or the COPS Office. My guests today, Mickey Ostreicher and Chief Billy Grogan, discuss public recording of law enforcement. We discuss the rights of people to record police in public, so-called First Amendment audits, and how police should be trained in a way that protects people's constitutional rights. I hope you enjoy the conversation I had with the two of them. And now here's my interview with Chief Billy Grogan and Mickey Ostreicher. Thank you both for being on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. This is going to be a little bit different for us. Most of my podcasts have been uh, separate interviews, so I'm excited to try and experiment with this and, and see how it goes. You both have uh, worked together. Can you talk a little bit about um, some of the work you've done together, um, Chief Grogan? Sure. Uh, several years ago, the IACP received a COPS grant to do a, uh, some research on the public recording of police. And uh, so Mickey and I were on the advisory committee that uh, helped. Uh, we met several times and, and discussed a lot of the issues related to the public recording of police. And ultimately, the IACP put together uh, some uh, training documents and resources for local agencies to help guide uh, departments across the country in public recording of police. Mickey, can you give us a little bit of background about some of the issues around civilian recording police? Just, uh, you know, what are some of the major cases and, and what has sort of shaped the conversation around uh, public recording of law enforcement? Um, sure. There, there have been a number of, of issues that have come up over the years. Uh, I, I think there's, there was at least a general misbelief that when officers are out in public that they, they have some reasonable expectation of privacy. But pretty much uh, the, the rule of thumb is that when you are in a public place, um, that, that you don't. Uh, now, if you get in a patrol car or do something where you're not outside on a, on a, in a public forum, um, that's a different story. So case law has formed over the years. Uh, the seminal case is uh, Glick v. Kniff, which um, took place in the First Circuit. Uh, there was a gentleman who was uh, walking, walking through um, uh, the park and, uh, and, and saw some Boston police officers trying to effectuate an arrest took out his BlackBerry and started to record them. When he was done, they kind of looked at him and asked him if he'd been recording them. Recording them. He said yes. Uh, and then they arrested him and charged him with a violation of the Massachusetts uh, wiretap statute. 
that case got thrown out at the uh, uh, all the different charges that were lodged against him uh, were dismissed, including that one. And then he filed a, uh, a federal civil rights lawsuit under um, United States Code uh, 42 U.S.C. 1983. And uh, and basically the federal judge in that case uh, said no, uh, that there there was no qualified immunity and, uh, and, and that the case would be able to proceed. Um, the city of Boston appealed that up to the First Circuit and the fir- First Circuit reaffirmed that. We've seen the same kind of thing now in all of the odd U.S. Circuit Courts of Appeals. So the first, the third, the fifth, the seventh, the ninth, and the eleventh have all said the same thing. It's interesting that the even courts have not really weighed in on it. Go, go figure why. It has, so has it not made to the Supreme Court then? Is this no, all just been appellate court? Uh, no, this, this matter has not been heard. Uh, by, this issue has not been determined by the Supreme Court. So it's really pretty much a circuit court by circuit court um, issue. And you know what, what's important here is that once that right has been clearly established, it's very difficult for officers to then um, claim qualified immunity. So that's why it's so important, uh, both on the law enforcement side and for citizens and journalists. And Chief Grogan, can you talk a little bit about what the impact on law enforcement has been and how it may have changed um, with the ubiquity of camera phones and mobile recording devices generally? Well, sure. Well, I think when you, when you look at the devices that everyone has on their hip now or in their pocket, uh, certainly it's become more prevalent. Uh, you know, just about any major incident, uh, especially where there's a crowd around, uh, many people have their phones out and they're easily able to record it, share it immediately on social media. And so I, I think that, you know, that's it's just become commonplace now. Uh, regardless of the legal perspective, I think previously, if you go back and look and you see some of the videos that have been posted where police officers have confronted people who are recording them and they otherwise were not interfering with uh, the police officer doing his or her job, it's really left law enforcement with a black eye uh, because uh, we end up looking like the bad guys, uh, like we have something to hide. Even though, uh, you know, in most cases, the people who are doing the recording uh, are not interfering with the officers, not causing kind of I- any kind of issues. Mm-hmm. It's the simple fact that the officers sometimes uh, don't like to be recorded, and in some cases, uh, uh, inappropriately, they they think there's some legal restriction on uh, people being able to record them. So I think when you move forward and you combine what that was happening. And then you add on what happened in Ferguson, and it, and it, you know, when we start trying to stop people from recording, doing lawfully recording us, it ends up escalating situations rather than de-escalating situations. So I think we've come a long way uh, in the knowledge and uh, in our actions in law enforcement toward uh, the public recording uh, the police, but I, I think we still have a, a long ways to go.
I think it's really important for officers to remember that pretty much uh, every cell phone may be recording. So I think keeping that in mind, keeping the fact in mind that if a person, whether they're a citizen or a journalist, has a legal right to be p- present, if they're in a traditionally public forum standing on a sidewalk uh, or in a park, that they can photograph and record the officer, as the chief said, as long as they don't materially interfere. So they don't have this absolute right to do whatever they want. So if there's some specific direction that the officer wants to give them, that's perfectly appropriate. But as we've seen uh, far too many times where the officers tell them to turn off the damn camera and get the hell out of here, that's not an appropriate time, place, and manner restriction on their First Amendment rights. So uh, there's a couple of things I wanted to touch on in in there. Um, Both like what is... How does recording, civilian rights to record, how does that connect with um, the First Amendment right a little bit more clearly? And then, um, and then what are some of those time, place, and rest- uh, time, place, and manner restrictions? So, um, Mickey, if you wouldn't mind taking sort of how does uh, recording police connect to that First Amendment um, sure. protection? So, there's a number of clauses in the First Amendment, but the ones we're going to deal with here are the freedom of speech and freedom of the press. And most people, when they go, well, freedom of speech, what does that have to do with photographing or recording? But uh, through case law, it's been determined that photography and, and recording is a form of expression, and without expression, you can't have free speech. So that's how it comes under the ambit of the First Amendment. And then, again, the other principle is because when you're out in public, there is no reasonable expectation of privacy. And and Chief Grogan, can you talk a little bit about the the time, manner, and and place restrictions? Um, How should uh, both law enforcement um, think through those and how should community members who are recording think about those issues? Sure. Well, I think Mickey's touched on some of it in the fact that, you know, if it's a a public space, a public area that they have access to, then, you know, certainly they can record. Uh, But what happens sometimes is in uh, people's excitement, uh, they get too close to the action. So if an officer is using uh, force of some type trying to arrest someone and somebody is standing immediately behind the officer, the officer can't see them. The officer may think that, you know, sometimes they may be with the person, so the officer doesn't know their intentions necessarily. It can put the officer unnecessarily at risk. And so that's a situation where the person, uh, you know, would probably need to step back. And so you don't want to ever put yourself in the middle of the situation that you're recording. It's fine to stand back at a distance enough or not stand in traffic or not stand in anywhere else that you would be interfering with the, the officers trying to perform their duties or putting yourself in, in danger. And it's really situation uh, based on situation to situation is not necessarily a blanket statement, but certainly I think in a general sense, you know, not interfering with the case, uh, the actions of the officer, and then not, you know, putting yourself any type of risk, whether it's risk from traffic or from approaching vehicles or uh, from any of the suspects. If it's a moving situation, uh, a case is, is happening, uh, some type of incident. You just don't want to uh, be in a situation that becomes dangerous for you or uh, people that you're with. And then, and then, how do you think? Um, I guess this might be a question for both of you, but how should law enforcement officers appropriately establish um, 
restrictions, right? That, that way they, they grant the citizens the right or, or the people the right to record um, in a uh, an appropriate manner, but they're not putting uh, such burdens or restrictions on those uh, individuals who are recording. I think the best way for officers to do things is to not specifically address the camera. Uh, assume that the person is there and if they have a legal right to be present, if they're standing on a public street, um, then if you need them, direct them with specific directions as to where you would like them to stand. Uh, I need you to stand over here so I can see you. Um, you need to step back a couple of feet. I mean, an officer also is concerned about weapon retention. If somebody's close enough to reach for your weapon, that's a reasonable time, place, and manner restriction for you to ask them to step back. If they're shouting at, you know, whatever's going on and, and saying, you don't have to answer his questions, I mean, that, again, rises to a different level of material interference, whereas if a person is just silently standing there as if they were also, you know, watching this, but they happen to have a cell phone in their hand and recording it, it really shouldn't make any difference whether they're watching or recording. If they're able to be there, um, if they're doing something that is either endangering the officer, a third party, or themselves, then the officer, just as they would in any other situation, needs to give them clear direction as to where they want them to be. But telling them that they need to move back so far away that they can't see and hear unless there's a reason for it. Let's just say, for example, you've got a bomb threat. Now they're clearing the area. They're not clearing you out because you got a camera in your hand. They don't want anybody that's there because if the bomb goes off or an explosive device goes off, um, they're responsible for that person's safety. So it really depends what is reasonable in terms of asking somebody to move back a few feet in one situation. Asking them to move back, you know, a block might not be unreasonable in another situation. Mickey, Mickey makes a great point uh, in that act as though the, the camera is not there. So your decision making has to be related to whatever else is going on. The worst thing you can do as, as an officer is say, are you recording me? Because then you kind of, you've given away your intent uh, to whatever maybe follows with your directions. So if you keep it, uh, you know, simply the facts, you know, hey, I need you to move over here where I can see you, or can you step back from this, you're too close, or, you know, some kind of direction, but regardless of the, the, uh, the camera. And then Mickey did mention, uh, we do have situations, you know, across the country where, um, and people do this for a living. You know, they, they go out and they're, in some cases, they're, they're actually looking to have confrontations with police officers. And uh, so, uh, you know, they're getting, you know, sometimes in the face of the officer and being very aggressive. And, you know, at that, at that particular point, you know, if an officer, officer feels like they're, you know, being threatened or there's uh, something else that, you know, some, he needs to get the situation under control, then you have to give appropriate direction to the person who's doing the recording. Before this, um, Chief and I talked a little bit about those constitutional checks and 
people, you know, posting things on YouTube, uh, just to check the cops. I want to I want to talk a little bit about that, both from the constitutional checks as I mean, you can't see, but I'm putting that in quotes, um, the constitutional checks and also social media, uh, generally speaking. How have those two things sort of shaped the law enforcement's uh, training and response to um, civilians recording police? I mean, I think certainly most uh, professional police departments are aware uh, that this is happening, and hopefully they're given the, their officers proper instructions. Uh, you know, we've had uh, a group coming around here in our area, not to, to my department, but they came to other local departments, and all they were doing was walking around the, the lobby of the police department and with a camera and just recording everything, and and uh, they moved out into the parking lot and the you know the public parking lot there's not they didn't go behind any barriers and so they're recording it uh recording just the vehicle sitting there and all this and uh, it uh, it went south pretty quickly and that wasn't that long ago and uh all because uh, you know um the uh, uh supervisor that ended up coming on the scene decided that he wasn't allowed to record and that he he was restricted from recording. He needed to turn the camera off, or he was going to go to jail. Now this is after many of these court cases, and and you know it's I think in professional law enforcement circles it's pretty well known now. Like uh, Mickey said, it's an established uh, you know uh, fact that people have a right to record when they're in these public places. And so I think uh, you know these uh, constitutional checks and quotes, as you said. Uh, are happening uh, more frequently and you know police departments need to be aware and know how to act appropriately because uh, this information is going to be shared on social media posted on different uh, platforms and you know if, if it's handled incorrectly uh, not only does it uh, make the department look bad and the officer look bad you know in some cases you could open up your agency to some liability and so it's extremely important that it be handled appropriately. We've seen that a lot where they're doing what the, what a lot of them call first amendment audits. You know, for whatever reason they've taken it upon themselves to go out and and uh, and see how officers and departments react to being photographed and recorded. You know, the thing that I deal with uh, most of the time are either citizens or journalists who happen to come upon police officers performing their official duties and and think that it's important to record um, that event because it's a matter of public concern. But, you know, the video cuts both ways. It can show that an officer absolutely performed professionally. They were polite and, and, and they acted with the courtesy and professionalism that officers are expected to do. So it's not always that somebody's trying to get a gotcha moment, um, getting officers to do something bad. But oftentimes they are out there to see if they can goad officers into taking, taking the bait. Um, the problem is, you know, when I, when I was a journalist, the only way that the public uh, might see uh, photographs and recordings is if those pictures were published in a newspaper or a magazine or broadcast by a television station. Um, as the chief said, now with social media, pretty much um, those images can be live streamed. Um, they can be seen around the world and go viral in a matter of moments. So as, as we often say, you know, we were trying to get officers to not be video stars. And, you know, 
to keep departments from being sued, to keep offices from being sued. And then also, you know, it's kind of a win-win because the public then has the right not only to exercise their First Amendment rights, but also to be informed and and see officers um, acting uh, in the appropriate manner. It's not always that somebody's going to be acting inappropriately. Are there differences between the rights that um, credentialed journalists have versus rights that uh, individual citizens who just happen to be uh, on the corner recording might have. No. Um, uh, you know, again, in my training with both citizens, journalists, and police officers, uh, the press doesn't have any greater right of access than the public. Uh, if the police set up a perimeter and uh, to, for either you know evidence collection or public safety, then everybody needs to be behind that perimeter if it's clearly set up. Now, oftentimes. Uh, if a PIO arrives, if a commanding officer arrives, and the situation uh, warrants it, they may allow the press to get closer um, to uh, the the uh, scene than the general public. But they certainly, um, as I said, they don't have any greater rights than the public, but they certainly also have no less right than the public. Uh, far too often we will see uh, where the police will set up a perimeter and they'll allow the public like right up to the yellow tape. But when the media shows up, they'll direct them, you know, much further back saying, well, you have longer lenses and you can get closer. And and that's just as inappropriate. So they can't get closer unless the police allow them. They don't have any kind of constitutional right or First Amendment right to do that. Um, but they certainly can't kept, be kept further away or shouldn't be kept further away than the general public. In addition to some of the, the tools that you had mentioned earlier on, what are how do you train your officers in handling some of these situations, both with the public and with uh, media present? Sure. So um, one of the things I think that's helped with this topic is the uh, prevalence of body-worn cameras. And so we've had body-worn cameras. We've had in-car cameras, you know, for the entire existence of our department, which is 10 years old. And uh, But we got body cameras, body-worn cameras, about four years ago, maybe going on five years. And officers are now really used to everything being recorded that they do. Every call that they go on, the, the camera's recording. And, uh, you know, it's kept for the prescribed time uh, that we're required by our retention laws here in Georgia. And so officers now have become accustomed to, uh, to being recorded. So I, I don't think uh, today it's, it's as much of a, especially newer officers, uh, younger officers who are very active on social media, who probably think nothing about, you know, doing a selfie or a video or, or whatever, uh, they're, they're just used to being recorded, unlike maybe some, you know, older officers from my generation and, uh, and, and later. And so, uh, you know, we, we talk certainly about that uh, through our annual training and, and the resources that are available with the ICP, the public recording of police resources. Those are very helpful. A little short uh, roll call video. There's a longer, longer video as well, longer training. And both those resources are excellent to kind of give a, a broad overview of it. They, they have a few examples there. And I think it's really simple to deliver, but also uh, simple to understand. 
and uh, they make it they make it real easy uh, uh, to get that information out there. And for us, you know, we we've, we've had people you know record us all the time on calls, and uh, you know the press the press shows up at uh, at uh, uh, different times, and uh, you know they're just used to being recorded. And you know we did have people say, "I'm recording you," and you know usually the officer responds, "Well, that's fine." You know, I'm, I'm recording the situation also with my body camera. And, right. uh, and usually that's, that's the end of that. So it, it works. That works for us. Yeah. You know, to add on to what the chief said, it's so important, I think, for departments, first of all, to have a policy. Um, and there are many model policies. The IACP has one that are available. So departments don't have to reinvent the wheel. And then once you have that policy that whatever it is that you're comfortable with, then you need to have training. I mean, we can't talk about with everything else how important training is. And just having a policy with no training, then it's just a piece of paper. Uh, but if you have the proper policy, if you give the proper training, you give it uh, on a regular basis, not like once when you're coming through the academy and then forget about <laughs> it. Uh, I think then, you know, if there's a deviation, uh, then it's 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 much easier to, you know, possibly if you have to um, provide remedial training, if you have to discipline an officer. I, I mean, you can't just expect officers to know this without having a policy and without having a tra uh, without having training, just as you wouldn't expect them to know other things without those general orders and training. Very, very true. Mickey, can you briefly touch on some of the um, consequences of but legal consequences for departments if? You know, their officers aren't trained properly. What are some of the, the situations that, that you've seen in your uh, legal career? Um, well, you certainly you can be faced with those uh, federal civil rights lawsuits that I mentioned at the beginning that end up uh, costing uh, citizens and taxpayers hundreds of thousands of dollars unnecessarily. Uh, you know, the extreme is having an officer uh, disciplined, losing pay. Uh, you know, we've had one case in New York City where because the officer um, uh, swore on a uh, misdemeanor complaint in the narrative to things that didn't actually happen, uh, that officer ended up being prosecuted uh, uh, for that. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's that's one component uh, uh, of things. The other thing is that you can end up having the Department of Justice look into the whole department. And we've seen many uh, unfortunate departments that end up being under DOJ scrutiny um, where, uh, you know, they, they spend a lot of time. And I think the chief probably can talk about this better than I can when they're digging themselves out of a hole that, you know, <clears throat> you know, that rule of holes. When you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. And unfortunately, some some people don't get that. Yeah. And I know, you know, when when we were going over a podcast on body worn cameras, um, you know, we were talking about those costs and benefits, both, you know, there's a cost of having body worn cameras, but uh, they can also help uh, protect departments um, from lawsuits with, in, in, in addition to helping um, uh, civilians, of course, as well. Um, so, you know, and, and we talked a little bit already about the 
proactiveness of body-worn cameras and helping tamp down some of the issues around uh, being recorded by civilians as well from the police officer's well, perspective. Yeah, part of part of sometimes what happens, you know, with some of these public recordings of the police is it's not the whole situation. So they caught the last, you know, 30 seconds of some incident that's been going on for a minute and a half. And yeah. so that, that, that proved to be a little problematic for officers. And that's one, one of the reasons that uh, I think a, a lot of departments made the move toward, uh, you know, body-worn cameras in that, hey, if, if these situations are happening and we're getting, you know, part of what's going on being recorded, we, we need to record what actually is going on the entire thing. And uh, I think that's been, you know, helpful for law enforcement for sure. Absolutely. So it's very rare that somebody's going to have been recording, you know, to to whatever uh, the interaction that led up to possibly, you know, some some uh, official action by the officer. So yes, that's that's a perfect reason, and it's real, the real reason, as as the chief said, why you know a lot of the officers that are using body cams understand the concept. If you know that you're out there doing what you're supposed to be doing, you know, you would want to welcome all the recordings that you could have, which kind of, and I don't know how much you want to get into this, but I think it's an issue um, that we should mention at least is when people or, or the media are recording, oftentimes we've seen officers say that they can seize that recording as evidence. And yeah, that was actually, I mean, that was, that's a perfect segue. That was going to be my next question. If we could talk a little bit about that, please. Sure. So, you know, uh, oftentimes we've seen officers say to someone, well, you know, if you've recorded me, I'm going to seize that as, as evidence. And, uh, and, and there are exigent circumstances under which, um, you know, a, a recording can be, uh, seized. There has to be, um, probable cause um, that a serious crime has been committed. And the, the act of somebody recording uh, a police officer in and of itself is, is not a crime at all, let alone a serious crime. Serious crime is normally, you know, death or bodily injury. And then the officer has to have a good faith belief, which is a much lesser standard, legal standard, that there's evidence of that crime on the camera. And then the third prong, and all three prongs have to be met, uh, is that they have to have a good faith belief that absent, uh, you know, the seizure, that that recording will be lost or destroyed. And then most departments, and maybe the chief wants to talk more directly to this, have a policy that if you're going to do a seizure of somebody's recording device, whether it's a cell phone or a camera, that you normally have to call a supervisory officer uh, and and go through a certain set of procedures. Now, there's nothing wrong with an officer asking, hey, did you record this? Can I take a look at it? And if a person wants to voluntarily show them that, um, that's one thing. If they want to voluntarily possibly email that file uh, to uh, an email that the departments have set up for the retention uh, and collection of, of, of electronic evidence, that would be another thing. But, you know, coercing somebody into showing that even if you have, meet the exigent circumstances, um, there's you need still need a, a warrant to, to actually take a look at what's on that device again, unless there's a higher exigent circumstance where it's going to be the fact that if you don't look at it, 
that somebody uh, may be seriously injured or killed, or there may be a serious incident. I think Mickey makes a great point, too. You certainly want to make sure that uh, before you do something like that, that you have a supervisor's uh, permission to move forward, that there's been a supervisory review of, of the seizure. Uh, but I would, I would also caution that this should be very rare and unusual. It should not be something that's commonplace. And you certainly shouldn't, uh, you know, seize it as some basically pretextual type of uh, reason to just, uh, you know, get their recording. Uh, because then you're going to end up in a, in a lot of trouble as a result of that. And whatever was on there would, would not be able to be used in court as well. Chief Grogan, I mean, you've talked, I mean, you've, you know, you've been in this work and you've been uh, talking to chiefs across the country on some of these issues. You know, what are some of the things that, that you are hearing from them um, on, you know, how to address some of those issues with their officers and supervisors to make sure that they're following the necessary legal protocols and standards um, for those? So I think even just a few years ago, uh, people were having a hard time in law enforcement across the country. I remember there's uh, some departments that had got uh, uh, spanked by the court, so to speak, but then they were still doing the same thing. Uh, they were still seizing, uh, you know, people's uh, cameras and recording devices. And uh, but I but I think I've seen uh, some uh, transition or some uh, better acceptance. I think you know it really. Uh, starts from the leadership, and I think uh, the chiefs are are more aware of uh, of this issue and have uh, made a more concentrated effort uh, to get out in front of it and prevent problems before they happen. I think they're most you know professional chiefs recognize that this is a issue that needs to be addressed through policy and through training. I think the IACP's done a, a, a great job, you know, partnering with the cops uh, office through a grant to uh, actually give some deliverable materials that can be used to educate officers and to help, uh, you know, put departments in a better place uh, uh, related to this uh, topic. So I think I've seen a lot of, lot of progress. Yeah. Mickey, you talked, when we were talking on the phone um, a couple weeks ago, you talked a little bit about some of the issues that um, you've seen around um so-called catch and release charges. Can you talk about some of the issues that, that you saw and some of those challenges that some departments are facing? Yeah. In but, terms but of officers? Before we get to that, because I don't want to forget, the one thing that, that, we did, that we do see and that's a problem is just as I talked about uh, the exigent circumstances, we've seen officers that end up seizing the recording for the purpose of either deleting or destroying it. And there have been a number of those cases already. So that basically turns exigent circumstances on its head. The whole idea is to seize that recording to preserve the evidence, certainly not to destroy it. So, you know, the Department of Justice has come out very strongly in, in one of those cases that said there are no circumstances under uh, the First Amendment uh, whereby an officer should delete or destroy or order the person who owns uh, that equipment, or a third party to delete or destroy those images. Uh, and that has uh, implications not only for the First Amendment, but for the 14th Amendment in terms of due process, 
and also for Fourth Amendment seizures. So, you know, I think, you know, those are some of the kinds of things um, that we see. And, and it's unfortunate that there are still uh, departments out there. Uh, as the chief said, the IACP offers all this uh, wonderful resources and material um, that, that we were able to put together uh, that's got the policy, they've got the training, they've got videos, they've got instructor guides, they've got everything you need, and uh, it, it really isn't a heavy lift so that every department should not ever run into this problem where their officers um, basically violate people's constitutional rights, violate the very rights that officers uh, took an oath to uphold. So it's, it's really important. And, um, and, you know, I just feel uh, very honored to have been part of this and work with uh, so many law enforcement officers like the chief that really want to make sure that that message uh, gets heard loud and clear throughout the country. I mean, we're sort of wrapping up the, the podcast and I don't want to take too much more uh, of your time. Um, but chief, you know, what are some of the the things generally or some of the, the challenges, um, you know, that you would want um, other chiefs or other law enforcement uh, officers to be cognizant of, you know, one or two important takeaways that, that they think that, that you think they should understand, um, you know, some of your key takeaways from your work in this field. Well, one, one, I guess would be human nature, you know, uh, sometimes when, uh, police officers are confronted with, uh, you know, people, and it's probably more, more so when it's somebody that's, you know, getting close to them or in their face or being loud or something, as opposed to, you know, somebody standing over. But human nature sometimes takes over, and we, we, the officers may act or react in a way that's, uh, you know, not appropriate. And I, and I think having. Uh, a good policy and, and like Mickey talked about training on that policy uh, so that it becomes kind of ingrained, it becomes second nature, they understand that, they will uh, be less likely to overreact or react inappropriately uh, to those types of situations. So uh, a little investment in uh, on the front end and uh, that type of uh, policy and training uh, can pay dividends later on, on the back end so that somebody doesn't just have a, a knee-jerk reaction to a situation. Great. And that's, I mean, that's everything that I have. Um, you know, Mickey, is there, is there anything that you, you want to add before we wrap up uh, the podcast? No, I, you know, I think we've covered it. I think the chief said it before, but, uh, you know, I'll say it again. The camera shouldn't be the issue. If a person has a legal right to be present, whether it's in a public place or on private property with permission of the owner, the officer shouldn't really be reacting to the fact that there's a camera there. If anything, uh, they should welcome it. Well, on that note, we will leave it there. Thank you both for being on the podcast. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. It was a pleasure uh, being on with you, Chief. Thank you. Good talking to you, maybe. I want to thank Chief Grogan and Mickey Ostreicher again. I also want to thank you for listening. To find resources and trainings on this topic, please visit theiacp.org forward slash prop. And we'll also put a link in the show notes. 
feel free to email us with any questions or comments at discoverpolicing at the IACP.org. For this episode, I had research and production help from Elon Lee. Thank you to the U.S. Department of Justice's COPS office for their support on this episode. Please see the show notes to learn more about the COPS office and follow their work. This project was supported in whole or in part by Cooperative Agreement Number 2017-CK-WXK-004, awarded by the U.S. Department of Justice, Office of Community-Oriented Policing Services. And as always, the opinions contained herein are those of the speakers and do not represent the official position or policies of the U.S. Department of Justice. References to specific individuals, agencies, companies, products, or services should not be considered an endorsement by the speakers, IACP, or the U.S. Department of Justice. Rather, the references are illustrations to supplement discussion of the issues.